All right, we're on chapter 15 of Disciplines of a Godly Man book. The topic is leadership. I'd like to start by reading a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 34. It's the very end of the uh, book of Deuteronomy, beginning with verse 10. We're talking about the loss of Moses and how Moses was a great leader, an unparalleled leader. So what do you do when you lose him? Uh, so leadership, the question of leadership is introduced this way. Uh, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So, when you have a leader as great as Moses, and then he passes away, which is the whole point at the end of the uh, 34th chapter of Deuteronomy, the end of the book, what do you do then? Uh, you hope that you can find a leader that will uh, rise up and lead the nation beyond him. And so it's pointing out the, the point of chapter 15 of Pastor Hughes, our author, is that there's a lack of leadership. We're in a crisis of leadership. What do we do? We don't have people like Moses around. Um, if you think of that classic scene where the aliens arrive and they meet you and they say, take me to your leader, uh, the answer, according to Pastor Hughes, must be, well, we don't have one. Uh, there are no uh, leaders. It's a very pessimistic view, but yet there's truth to it. We see the point that Pastor Hughes is making. There's a consensus around that there is a crisis or a lack of leadership and a longing for better leadership. At least we could say that. There's a longing for a better, stronger uh, leadership. We could say this for government. We could say it for the church. We could say it for hospitals and businesses. It's across the board. Of course, he's focused on the church. This is a Christian book, Christian concerns here. So Pastor Hughes' assumption is that all areas of leadership are more difficult today than they were in past generations because of certain reasons. A, the modern complexity of life. There's a lot more to learn and a lot more impacting other aspects of things, as you know. B, the size of today's institutions. Things are much larger. The population is growing. Um, schools are bigger. Churches are bigger. Businesses are bigger, and so on. It complicates uh, things. And then C, the current confusion about leadership. What is leadership? Where should we be going? And what is the role of a leader to get there? So a uh, solution is back to a biblical model on leadership. So back to our crisis of Moses' death. What do we do? Uh, God raised up Joshua. So Joshua had seven unique experiences that set him apart as a good leader to succeed Moses. Each of these characteristics gave him a necessary quality in order to lead God's people after the loss of the great Moses. So they're listed in the book. I'll just go through them quickly. Number one is prayer, quality of prayer. Joshua won the battle, if you remember, only while Moses' hands were raised towards heaven. Exodus 17, verses 8 and 9. While Moses' hands were still up, they were winning. And after Moses, just being a human, as much as he might have exercised, could only raise his hands for so long, eventually they came a person on his left and a person on his right to hold his hands up. It was a symbol of prayer. 
we only win in a posture of prayer and in constant communication to God and dependence and reliance on him. So prayer is a necessary quality for leadership. Second is a vision for God that Joshua uh, was on a Sinai with Moses near the glory of God. So he gleaned the same vision of God that Moses had. We see that in Exodus chapter 24. Vision for God is number two. Number three, a devotion to God. That's from Exodus chapter 33. After God spoke to Moses there, Joshua did not leave the tent. So it shows his devotion to God. He spells that out in our chapter. The fourth one is magnanimity. Good luck spelling that, uh, magnanimity. It simply means a great spirit. Uh, Magna means great. Animus means spirit, a great spirit. We usually say a bigger person. Lately, people have been saying, be the adult in the room. It's the same idea. Be the responsible party. Be the mature one. Be the adult. uh, Be a greater spirit. And the example is given in Numbers chapter 11 with Joshua. Um, They were saying, um, Joshua was saying, stop them, Moses, from prophesying. These others were prophesying. He's saying to Moses, stop everyone else from prophesying. You're the prophet, sir. You, Moses, should be the only one prophesying, so put out an order, stop everyone else from prophesying. Moses' response shows how Joshua needed to learn magnanimity because Moses said, if only all of them were prophets, if everyone spoke the word of God. And it's a prophetic sigh that is fulfilled in the New Testament. All of us are prophets. All of us are priests. All of us are kings. Prophet in the sense that you can speak the word of God. You could lead a Bible study, right? You could talk to your neighbor, your grandchild, or uh, a friend in your family about what Scripture says. That's being a prophet, bringing God's word to people. A priest means praying for people. You can pray for people. And a a king means taking a place of uh, leadership. You could be on a committee. You could be a committee chair, that sort of thing, taking leadership in the world, prophet, priest, and king. So back to Joshua and the character of magnanimity. He should have been bigger like Moses was bigger and realized it's not about Moses retaining power and being the only prophet in the area. It's about um, God's people being blessed. And it's more than just me is an important aspect of leadership. That was number four, magnanimity. Number five is faith. In Numbers 13 and 14, we get the whole story. Remember how they spied out the land of Canaan and they saw giants? Uh Uh-oh, these guys are really big. What do we do now? Only two out of the 12 said, we can do this, we can win. The two were Caleb and Joshua. So Joshua was one of those who came back and said, we can win. Now, that tells us something. Ten said, no, let's not do this. Way too scary. What's the majority? Ten out of 12 is the majority. So the majority can be dead wrong. And a leader is one who is able to say, this is right. I don't mind that the majority is saying the opposite thing. This is right, and we need to go in this direction. So an aspect of of leadership is faith. In fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, repeatedly in what we call the chapter of the heroes of faith, it says, by faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so. It's a key essential aspect of Christianity. Of course, it's a key essential aspect of leadership in Christianity that people have to have faith in God, not just faith in the 
ask the audience. As long as the majority of people want it that way, let's just go that way. That's a crisis of leadership. Faith in God and that the right thing to do is winning in my head and therefore I'll lead that way. Faith. Number six is the spirit. Having the spirit of God. Uh, Numbers 27 verse 18. Joshua is described as a man in whom is the spirit. Should sound familiar because we have this in the New Testament such as Stephen, a man filled with the spirit. So we have both Old Testament and New Testament. The role of the spirit of God in that person creates leadership for them. Um, Acts 6 Verse 3 and verse 5 for Stephen. And then Paul turns to all of us in Ephesians 5.18 and says, Be filled with the Spirit. So even if you're not in leadership, our calling as Christians is to have both word and spirit and continue forward that way. But it's essential for, for leaders. This is my timer. Keep me on track. So... Uh, we'll finish up now and move on. Um, the seventh one, I said there were seven. The seventh one is expendability. Kind of related to magnanimity that we covered already, but expendability is consciously being aware eventually someone else will do your job and someone else can do your job. And we should actually plan for someone else to do your job. It's not only okay, but it's how it works. And so... Get used to that, pray about it, work with other people to raise up someone to take your place. In Deuteronomy 34, from which we've read this morning, Joshua faced the death of Moses. We read there how Moses was the greatest leader Israel ever had, greater than Joshua. So it should be that Joshua would start and go through his entire time of leading in a place of humility, saying, well, I'm never going to be the greatest leader that Israel ever had because we've already determined that that was Moses, my predecessor. But if even Moses is expendable, how much more expendable must I be because I'm not as great as Moses? So he should be able to carry around with himself the conscious, constant awareness that he is expendable. That's a leadership trait or characteristic. So a leader has to have a dream or a goal of what needs to be accomplished. An answer for those who ask, and they should ask, what are we doing this for? The leader ought to be able to answer that. And the ability then to communicate that dream, either by speech, metaphor, diagram, or model. And a demonstration is the, uh, the method of pulling, not pushing. You can't push people, but you can pull them. You can lead them in a direction by having them follow you, show them how it's done, and let them imitate. So uh, determination and persistence are also aspects he brought out in the chapter. Hard work, never quit, that sort of thing. All right, moving to chapter 16, the discipline of giving. Again, if you just glance over the table of contents of this book, you'll see some of them that don't sound like disciplines. They don't sound like things that take constant effort. Um, giving immediate, doesn't immediately strike us as that, but as soon as you think about it for a few moments, you realize, yes, it does take discipline to give and to be consistent in giving. So the way he introduces this in the chapter is saying that wealth is dangerous to our souls, dangerous to our spiritual lives. And we live in a, a wealthy country. We live in the most wealthy uh, time or, or generation that we would have to admit to ourselves we are more wealthy we as a country, and probably we as individuals, than 
a large majority of the world today, and going back in time, certainly a large majority of those who have lived on the earth. Except for royalty, we are probably uh, the wealthiest. So is the danger of wealth something that we constantly think about and prevent the damage of uh, for ourselves? Are we aware of this danger and are we doing anything about it for our spiritual lives? So in 1923, uh, nine uh, people were called the masters of finance, the most successful businessmen, and he makes the case, our author makes the case, that they were mastered by their wealth, and each of those nine individuals have sad endings. Have we not heard this story before? Have we not seen this movie before? Wealthy people who have a sad ending. It's very common in our day. It's very common through church history. So if you want another story, you, know, you can read this chapter, 16 of this book, 1923. It happened all over again there. So the dangers, though, this is his point, the dangers are the same for us as for them, even though we're not at that echelon. Thinking this world is everything. If that's what we do, if that's the core mistake we make, we're just like the masters of finance. Thinking that this world is everything. Thinking that if I just have a little more, I'll be content. Um, thinking that uh, providing for my family means giving more and giving better. This Christmas, I'm going to really give the right and good and bigger gifts. More and bigger and better. Thinking that relationships are always better with wealth. Thinking that wealth makes us better people. All these are fallacies that if we fall into them, we, in, uh, uh, we get damaged. The danger is upon us then. So what's the solution? To deal straight up and head on with materialism, what could we as Christians do to escape the negative power of money. We obviously just can't like not do money. Whether it's your Venmo and your app, or whether it's cash or a check or credit, you have to interact with money. So that's not a solution. So what is it that we need to do with regard to our relationship to money? Do we isolate ourselves from it somehow? Um, the solution that our author gives, and he gets it out of 2 Corinthians 8, is the grace of giving that the grace of giving is the antidote to materialism and the damage to our spiritual lives of materialism. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he does a quick study of it. The, um, the word grace is used five times in the chapter in 2 Corinthians 8, so that giving is a matter of grace from beginning to end. It's all about grace. He gives a quick history of the grace of giving, and then he comes back to our chapter. So... Um, Giving in the Old Testament, you have 25% by the time you add all these up. So the Lord's tithe, we often think of as 10%, right? Numbers 18, 21, Leviticus 27, 30. I'll say these all real fast, but they're in the chapter. The Lord's tithe, followed by the festival tithe, Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 through 18, the annual feast, followed by the poor person tithe, Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29, we give something to the poor, Followed by the gleanings, you know, when you harvest a field, you leave some behind on purpose, the leave, leaving the gleanings behind. Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 10, you kind of try to estimate or factor how much you lost in your harvest by leaving those gleanings behind on purpose. It's costing you something, so we're adding that in. And then the temple tax, uh, Nehemiah 10, verses 32 to 33. If you add all those up, a safe estimate is that it's 25% of your income each year. Okay, the history of, of giving. So... Then what he, he causes us to notice is that we are called, the, the people of God were called to give tithes 
and offerings. So all that we've covered so far is the tithe, what's expected. Then you add offerings on top of that. So beyond the 25% of mandatory tithe giving, there was also the offerings from the heart above and beyond that. Offerings would then be non-required gifts. Uh, so you have first fruit offerings, Numbers 18, 11 through 13. Then you have free will offerings, Exodus 25, 1 and 2, Exodus 36, verses 2 and 7. Remember, that's the time when Moses said he had to tell them to stop giving. Stop giving. That, that they had the tithes already, and then their over and above offering givings were so voluminous, he said, we really just can't handle anymore. <laughs> stop. They're giving from a heart overflowing by what? It's God's grace. Even though it's in the Old Testament, it's still God's grace, right? Don't think that the Old Testament is only law. The New Testament is all grace. God's grace is prevalent in both, and God's law is prevalent in both, as I'll cover yet today about law. So they're giving from a heart overflowing with God's grace. Now back to 2 Corinthians 8. So he gave a quick history. Now he's back to his study of 2 Corinthians 8, grace giving in the New Testament. So verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul drew lessons from the astounding giving of the impoverished people of Macedonia. So he had astounding giving of God's people in the, in the Old Testament. Moses told him to stop giving. Now we have an example in the New Testament of the people of Macedonia, the Christians in the church across Macedonia, who themselves were poor, but were giving at such a rate, it was astounding, and Paul drew lessons. He's like, this is how to do it. Then verses 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4, they urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of participating. We want to serve the saints. We want to be in on this. We're in. Count us in. Please let us be in. We want to give. Let us give some. That's what they're doing. So what he's saying here is grace giving has nothing to do with being wealthy in the first place. Absolutely nothing to do with it. You can have this much money or this much money. It doesn't matter. Grace giving is not about the amount that you own. Grace giving is about your heart. That is straight up from Scripture. And it's how we view giving. To view giving as a privilege is the antidote. It's the answer. I get to do this. That's the lesson he's drawing from the people in Macedonia. We want to do this. Please, banging down the door. Let us give. Let us give. That's a completely different mindset than a lot of people have. Then he writes in verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. They did not do as we expected, but gave themselves. Listen, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. So what the point he's making is that grace giving is the result of giving yourself to God. Just think about it. It makes perfect sense. If you give yourself to God, then all of your cars and all of your property and all of your real estate and all of your houses and all of your bank accounts and all of your cash is already God's. So if you've already given yourself and everything that you own to God, how hard is it to give an offering? Because it's really just a representative part of what you've already given to God. Then he goes into verses 6 and 7, 2 Corinthians 8, 6 and 7, where he wrote, uh, Paul wrote, Bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. See that you also, the audience in Corinth and us reading over the shoulders of those in Corinth, right? that you also, just like those in Macedonia, that you also excel in this grace of giving. Run far in that direction. Keep going there is what Paul is saying. If you want the antidote to wealth, that it will smother you, 
go far in the direction of giving. So Paul held up there the example of the people of Macedonia so we'd be convicted and motivated to give. Um, Jesus also makes statements. I mean, the Bible has uh, more than 2,000 verses about giving, so these are just a couple. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Be on your guard against greed. That's what we've been covering. Luke 12, 21, Being rich toward God is giving yourself and your riches to God. That's what it means to be truly rich, spiritually rich. Give ourselves to God and see ourselves as stewards. Everything we have already belongs to God. And then Matthew six nineteen to 20, where Jesus famously said, lay up treasures in heaven. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote, there ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. In other words, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to go out to eat, I'm going to buy these things, we're going to do these vacations, and if there's anything left, then we'll give it. Instead, what he's saying is, we're going to give to this and this and this and this and this. And if there's anything left, then we'll do the fun stuff. It's flipping it around. Um, that's C.S. Lewis's way of saying what Paul has been saying, what our author has been uncovering. So we have to have discipline in giving. Um, a couple of points he ends with, these two points. Number one, a disciplined understanding. That giving can't change your position with God. We're never earning anything. You've got to be rock solid on that. This is not a workspace religion. This is a grace-based religion. We do not earn privileges from God. We don't get better blessings by giving. No, absolutely no. You've got to be rock solid on that. The disciplined understanding, it never gets confused. Number two, all giving cannot gain you favor. It does bring blessings. It's fun. It blesses you. It blesses the recipient. God gets honored. People get provisions that they need. Needs are met. It does bring blessings. Not favor, not increased status with God or anything like that, but just good things happen. Number three, giving that pleases God is generous and sacrificial. It's not just barely enough. It's generous. It's above and beyond. It's sacrificial. It costs you. You feel it. And then four, the amounts of your giving must be decided between you and God. Don't let external people decide for you. We don't give out a percentage as a church. And so you got to do that. We don't give numbers and all of the uh, calculations. We let you know what the full budget is and we vote on it together, but it's your decision what you give. So a disciplined understanding and then secondly, a disciplined will. You know, the will is the decision-making part of who you are. It's the air traffic control of your life. It's you. What do you decide to do? Having a disciplined will. I'm going to give myself to God. I'm going to remind myself today that everything I have belongs to you, Lord. And then I'm going to say, this is how much I decide to give. And I'm going to give regularly. I'm going to give starting right away. I'm going to be responsive and aware of needs. Lord, show me where the needs are, because it's fun to give to where somebody's truly needy. Lord, show me some of those needs. And I'm going to have joy in giving. It's going to be one of the funnest parts of my life, is giving, um, to have those kind of mindsets. And I'll just end with this. Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. All right, that's that. We've covered Disciplines of a Godly Man, book chapter 15 and 16. We're changing gears. All right, if you have a green booklet, I invite you to turn to the page now. I think it'll really help you to be on that page, 19. On the top it says, WCF 19, I love the law of God. Chapter 19, The Law of God. We, we started with this last week, and we're picking up now. 
to finish out the, the chapter. Um, so I thought it would be helpful if you can open that page, because if you look at the bold lines, you'll see the various categories of the law. Um, bold line one, law in context of covenantal relationship. I'll review that now quickly. Then, use of the law as a rule of righteousness. And the next three are the way we divide Old Testament law. This is so helpful. 19.3, ceremonial law abrogated. That's all the Old Testament laws of killing sheep and blood of goats and splattering that stuff and all of that. How do you do with all that system now? It's commands from God. Shouldn't we be doing that still? Did you bring your lamb today? Right? How do we understand how those things are? We say that the ceremonial law is abrogated. We'll explain that. 19.4, judicial law. This has to do with the nation of Israel, the actual historical government agency that is the nation of Israel. What about all those laws? The king must do that. People must do this. What do we do with those? We say judicial law is expired. And then 19.5, the moral law is binding. What continues today? Can you kill people today? Can you have adultery today? Can you steal today? Those things are still binding. Well, how do you, get, how do you strain those out of the law but not have all the rest of the commands of the law? And what about unbelievers? Are they under the law of God? So we'll cover some of those things today, 19.5. And then 19.6, section 6 of chapter 19, the use of the law as a rule of, of life. This is one of the most beneficial things out of the Westminster Confession, this phrase, the rule of life. How do Christians relate to what God commands in his word? If we call it a rule of life. It's so helpful. And yet coming back around, the last section, 7, law and gospel. How do all these commands relate to the fact that we're saved by grace through faith? Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. How, how do all these statements about the law keep us from being legalists and law-based? Are we still grace-based? How does that all work? Okay, so that's a teaser. Here we go. Uh, as we, we started to unpack last time, it all has to start with the covenantal relationship, section, section 1. There, the covenantal salvation has been spelled out in all these previous chapters. Justification, sanctification, and so on. Now what we're doing is taking all that truth and applying it to topics. So the first topic is the law of God. How does all this salvation, the great salvation, um, the grace of God to us and justification and sanctification, how does that apply to the law? How is our great salvation related to the law of God? The law of God is a central message of the Bible. That's why it makes sense for us to study the book of Jeremiah as a church right now, for example. We're talking about how Jeremiah preached to an ancient city of Jerusalem that they were doing wrong, they needed to repent. If they don't repent, they're going off into exile. How does that relate to us? Because if we break the law of God, we're out of sorts with God, and judgment must come. The only way to be redeemed in that is faith in Christ Jesus. And then once we're saved by Christ Jesus, can we go ahead and live as bad as we want to live? So you see how the, the message of repentance is always relevant for the Christian today. So there's two main lessons in the entire Bible. One is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to see who he is, God and man, the fact that he came to save, and we've covered that in all these previous chapters. We've covered it thoroughly. The second main thing the Bible presents is the law of God, the commands of God. Why do we read the Ten Commandments still? as a church, right? And even today, because today, first Sunday of the month, we have Lord's Supper. This is our habit here. We read it together. 
It's because the law of God is central and important. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law of God. So we, we can't ignore, we can't say we don't have to deal with the law anymore, it's not part of our lives. So we have, we have to define the law, and you see on, the, on your handout, what is the law of God? Defining it this way. A statement about what God requires of us as human beings. It's that simple. It's that basic. It's that um, direct, directly relevant. So we understand that God is an unchangeable God. So if he laid out things in the Old Testament, they're still binding on us today. Psalm 119, 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Psalm 119, 152, long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. So when did they expire? Commands of God are not expired. And then God wrote his law onto the consciences of men, the consciences of of humans. Uh, Romans 2, 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, all that means is they don't have the written law of God coming through the Jewish prophets. They, they were Gentiles. They're outside of Israel. That's all it means. They didn't get the direct written word of God and pronounced word of God. That's all it means. Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. If you steal, we're going to arrest you. We're going to prosecute you properly in court. And we have a punishment for thieves. They do that without anything of the Bible. How does that happen? Paul is saying, they did you by nature things required by the law. You can't sleep with my wife. I can't sleep with yours, right? So adultery, that happens in, in countries that didn't have any access to the Bible. You can't kill my brother or you're in big trouble with me. I can't kill your brother. I would expect you to come back around and have words with me. All of the Ten Commandments, right, are, are continuously done by countries outside of Christian influence. So that's what Paul's writing. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Paul is saying that we have to wrestle with the fact that people walk around knowing what's right and wrong without ever having heard the Bible. They'll tell you what's right. That's just wrong. Have you ever heard somebody who has zero training in Christianity saying, that's just wrong? Says you, but they're on to something, right? They're disturbed about something, and they usually have a grain of truth at least. So before sin came, the law was a way of life to Adam. So all people are expected to obey the law of God. Each person keeps on exercising moral judgments, and everyone has a conscience, it might be marred, it might be confused, they might try to reprogram it, but everyone has one, and they're always assessing life about right and wrong. So, we get to our, our first section, it covers the context is the relationship between God and Adam. Was Adam bound to obey the law? Yes. How did he do? Completely messed up, right? It wasn't personal, entire, exact, and perpetual. He fell on all of us in him. Is that even appropriate for God to command Adam? Well, yeah, he made him, right? If I got a sandbox and I put my toys in my sandbox, I can put my toys wherever I want in my sandbox. My sandbox, my toys, right? Doesn't that make complete sense? God is the creator and he can tell Adam what to do, yes. And ever since then, it still continues to be the case that God is the creator. 
um, it, it um, was broken by Adam, so therefore there's consequences. Then we go to section two, the use of the law as a rule of righteousness. Is the law that is a covenant of works only a prohibition from the tree? Is that it? If he hadn't eaten from the tree, he'd be fine, but he could kill people, he could commit adultery, he could steal other stuff, just can't steal fruit from the tree. No. The whole of the idea of the, the obedience to God and the life that God expects of us is tied up in that one prohibition from that one tree. And we could make a case that eating of that tree broke all 10. In fact, you could go wider and probably make a case that it broke all 613 explicit commands. Um, it includes all the commands. To take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to morally break all the commands of God. Take a quick example. When Jesus said to not even look at a woman lustfully, is he adding something to the seventh commandment? Isn't it true that it's already there in the seventh commandment at a basic level? If you're not going to actually do the deed of sleeping with the wrong person, you should also not look longingly, right? And go as close as you can to breaking the law without actually breaking it. Is breaking the prohibition merely eating what they were not supposed to eat? So they could get nuzzled really up close to that fruit and say, oh, that smells so good. They could take it and chop it up and serve it up and say, ooh, if only we could eat this dish, but we can't. You don't get as close as you possibly can to breaking the law of God, right? And breaking the prohibition that Adam and Eve did is breaking God's law ten times over. It was stealing. That wasn't their fruit. It was um, creating something in the image of God. Now I'm going to worship this idol instead of God. Again, you can make the case for all of it. So why didn't God say on Mount Sinai, don't eat of the fruit of the tree? Because they needed it spelled out. You ever walk away from children and you say, well, behave, be a good girl, <laughs> They have no clue what it means to be a good girl. Jumping up, up, down, down on the couch and throwing pillows all around until they rip open and there's feathers everywhere apparently seems like being a good girl to her, right? How does she get that? Because she needs it spelled out. There is no jumping on the couch. That's part of what we mean by being a good girl when mommy and daddy are gone. We needed it spelled out more than just don't eat of the fruit of the tree. God spelled it out for these Ten instructions that have been with us ever since. Yes, those basic commands. Basic understanding of how righteousness is seen in various parts of life is spelled out by God, by his grace and kindness to us. We needed it explained. We've got it explained. So then section three, it's fascinating how the authors said this, a church under age. What does that mean? It's, it's like an adolescent church. It's a church that doesn't quite yet have its full adult maturity. It's a church that needs things explained. The Old Testament church needed explanation and teaching while the church grew up. It's the elementary church. It's the adolescent church. It's the teenage church, if you will. So let me read section 3, if you're on um, chapter 19, section 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral, um, God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church underage ceremonial laws. So in addition to the Ten Commandments, we now have these other laws, ceremonial laws. These are bringing goats, bringing doves, bringing uh, bulls and, and lambs. Ceremonial laws, the whole sacrificial system, right? You cut them up, you burn them up, you splatter the blood in certain ways. Containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ. 
He's the Lamb of God eventually, right? The, his blood was spilled. His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse, various instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. What does abrogated mean? It means to treat as if it doesn't exist anymore. It's obsolete. We don't bring lambs and bulls and spread the blood around in our worship services anymore. Why not? We treat those Old Testament ceremonial laws as if there's no binding force left today because Christians should live as if the ceremonial laws don't exist anymore. They're part of the eternal word of God. You could turn in your Bible and still find those commands. However, we believe that we don't need to follow those commands today. They're not enforced today. It doesn't make sense today because we have the Lamb of God. If the power was out in this building overnight, so if we were here at 3 in the morning, I'd ask you to turn your flashlight on. But if right now, if I asked you to turn your flashlight on, you'd say, that's kind of silly. Right, because all these lights are on. So now that we have the Lamb of God, why would we bring an actual lamb? That'd be kind of silly, right? Because we have all our sins are washed away. We learn the lessons as an adolescent church. We learn the lessons as a teenage church. Now we've become adults, and he's given to us the actual Lamb of God. This is all lessons for the learning of the church. How did God relate to Israel like a parent relates to a child? By giving specific instructions so that the church under age needs to learn by seeing. Once you've seen that blood all over that priest, once you've seen lamb after lamb, goat after goat, dove after dove, get their neck wrung, cut open, blood sprinkled in this way and that way, like, wow, what is going on with all this blood? It's everywhere. It's all the time. What it tells you is God is holy. We are not. And it's a big problem. Every day, you can't miss that lesson. No matter how young you are, like, are we going to spill some blood today, Mommy? (laughs) Are you going to bring more animals? Why do we have to kill all these animals, Daddy? You can't miss the lesson no matter how blockheaded Israel was. It's like having a pop-up picture book. You understand from the picture. It's like having a cartoon. You understand the images of the lambs, even when Moses could have said it to you in propositional truth, but they can't absorb it. But they see the priests. They see the sacrifices. The blood of the goats was reality, and it taught them about reality. Then the section four, to them as a body politic. Now we're talking about the nation of Israel. He gave sundry or various judicial laws. This is what the king must do and so on. Which expired together with the state or nation of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So how are the people of God in the New Testament and the people of God in the time under age, the Old Testament, organized differently? The people of God are no longer one nation, but we are spread throughout every nation around the world. So we're not a political state. We're not a military state. We don't have earthly kings and earthly armies. We don't operate that way, so we don't follow those Old Testament commands. Has the function of the nation of Israel been fulfilled? Yes. It was for a particular people in a particular time. So now that the nation of Israel does not exist that way anymore, those laws have expired because the constitution of those people has expired. Never mind what happened in the 1940s. It's just, they happen to be called Israel. They happen to be in the same real estate. It has no bearing on how we interpret the Bible. 
that is new stuff that just another nation in this world. So then they say here, what does the general equity phrase mean? Further than the general the equity thereof required? It means principles of wisdom can still be learned. What's right and wrong? You can set out a test case in front of ourselves and learn things from what is allowed and what's not allowed. Um, it's principles of general equity that we learn from as lawyers still do today. They, they have special words that lawyers use to describe, such as precedent. We have precedent here for this case. Uh, there's a case that happened three decades ago that they're still saying, this court has to uphold it this way because that court upheld it that way. We learn things from cases, and this is case studies now. Now to that question about non-Christians. We're moving to section 5, 19.5, moral law is binding. The moral law doth forever bind all as well-justified persons as others. That means both Christians and non-Christians. In other words, God doesn't allow people to kill others if they happen to be unbelievers. You don't get away with that before the holy God just because you don't believe in Christ. They're under God's law because he's the creator and he said so. You can't kill people who are made in my image. Right? So the moral laws forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that, not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So Christians all the more have the command to obey God with regard to these basic moral laws. So do all people have to keep the moral law? Yes. Why would these authors emphasize God as creator in this section? Because the law is not given to us by Christ in the capacity of redeemer. The law is given to us by Christ in capacity of creator. It's going all the way back. It's very much a part of the actual created order itself. In addition to that, we have the redemption, and it's all the more strengthened. He, as our redeemer, tells us how to live. But the moral law is binding on us not because of its subject matter, but because of the creator. He said so. If he said each of us should eat three blueberries every day, then it would be the law of God. We should eat blueberries every day. But these are the commands he gave that are moral and that are basic for every generation and every nation and every person around the world. Then there's ones that were specific to the nation of Israel that we just learned from, but they're not binding on Christians and churches then there's um, ceremonial laws that all point to Christ, and Christ has come. So Christ has fulfilled the law for believers. So does that mean that believers are free from keeping the moral law? Believers are cleansed by Christ. So can we break the law? You could commit murder if you're a Christian, but not if you're a non-Christian. No, 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 no. Who's more obligated? According to this section, Christians are more obligated to keep God's commands because we have more revelation from God. We have the scriptures. We have his spirit within. It goes on this principle, privileges produce responsibilities. It's our privilege to have the Bible. It's our privilege to be converted. It's our privilege to have the spirit within. And that increases our responsibility to be obedient uh, to God. Um, so then section six about a rule of, faith, of, a rule of life. Um, this... Here, I wanted to read this phrase. Yeah, rule of life. So it's in section six. Uh, what is our relationship to the law now? 
and I know we're running out of time, so this is good. We'll just conclude this chapter. Let's say um, you knew that there's something the court just said that the fine is $100,000. You don't know what it is yet, but you know they're serious about it. The fine is $100,000. It's got to be more than just burning your leaves on your street. You weren't supposed to burn your leaves on your street. It's got to be something big, right? How do you know that? Because the fine is huge, $100,000. Let's say the reward is a million dollars. City of Milwaukee just put out a reward for a million dollars. You don't know what it is yet, but you know it must be a really big good thing you do that benefits the city because you could get a million dollars if you do that. So we learn something about the warnings, about the merit, about the rewards and uh, judgments of a court. It communicates something. So God's warning to us is, what if disobedience to this calls for the death penalty for you? It, it brings death. Then you know it's serious, that God is really holy, and we would be unholy if we, if we did this. So that kind of thinking is what's in this next section. We understand things about our walk with God because of what the Bible warns about. Let, let me read this now, section 6. Although true believers are, be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, there's our phrase, informing them of the will of God. What does God want? How does God want me to live, right? And their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts and lives, so, also, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate. Christians, right? To restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation or approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. In other words, you're not earning it. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. In other words, you still live in a world where you reap what you sow, right? You steal a car, somebody's going to be mad. If they find you, they'll arrest you. You've got to pay big money plus fines. We still live in a world where you reap what you sow. But the gospel still hasn't changed. Your relationship to heaven can still be, you're saved by grace, you're a believer, you just really messed up. You got to pay the fine, you got to give the car back, you got to do your time. And believers will come visit you and they'll bring you stuff you don't deserve. It's all by grace, and yet we, we have to pay attention to law. So, this rule of faith, and I got it on your handout there, what does it say after 19.6? Does God relate to us as in the covenant of works back in Adam in the Garden of Eden? No. That is, does God say to Christians, do this and live? No. He says, because you live, do this. It's the direct opposite. Instead of saying, you got to live right, and God will bless you. No, no, no. God has blessed you. Now you got to live right. That's the gospel. That, I mean, this is legalism. This is the gospel. That, that fundamental phrase. So if that helps you to say it that way, um, that's part of what we mean by this rule, uh, rule of life. 
So the first use of the law, rule of life, shows us how God wants us to live. Second use of the law, it's also listed on your handout there, um, to show us our sin. It's kind of a pedagogical or a teaching moment. Um, if, if this is the uh, punishment for this sin, it shows us just how serious that is. A pedagogical or teaching use of the law. And the third is to restrain evil by threats and deterrence and encourage obedience by promises and rewards. Um, attention to detail is not the evidence of a shaky relationship, but the evidence of a mature relationship. So, yeah, and then section seven. You know, the law and the gospel comply with one another. Because he has saved us, he expects us to, to live holy lives. Sec, um, for example, Titus 2.11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Two minutes passed. Boy, you got me excited talking about that. Uh, it's, it's important. Um, you know, you see the errors across <clears throat> evangelical world. Uh, we're not here to slam them, but just to say, what is it the Reformed Church believes, and why are these documents adopted by us and continue to be held by us? Because they dis- the, um, explain truth as over against error, and they keep us clear in our, our thinking and our ability to... Um, to express it. So, all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth.